you so much, Pastor Bert, for your warm welcome. Thank you, everyone, for this opportunity of being with you this morning. It's such a wonderful delight for me, personally, having just come back from Serbia, uh, having been there with Andy and Eileen, who you all know so well. It's uh, just a great pleasure to then come back into this context where I have visited just once before and to be with you now this morning. Uh, it's humbling for me and, and a deep honor. Thank you so much. I'd like to talk with us this morning on the subject of the earthly impact of an, of an eternal vision. The earthly impact of an eternal vision. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, please, as we enter upon that subject. Our gracious God, we thank you this morning that we come before you as the true God. We thank you that you are a God whose ear is turned toward us, that you hear us, that you listen to us, and as our Father, you make it possible for us to trust in you to the extent that the absence of anxiety is the product of our drawing close. We worship you. Teach us from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to open your Bible, if you would, please, or if you're like Moses, take your tablet, and we'll turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to read from verse 18 to 20. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, a well-known passage. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, I would like to train a spotlight this morning on what I believe to be the most authoritative and exceedingly challenging statement ever expressed in all of history. It comes from the lips of one whom most of you know well and may claim to be your very best friend. He said this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he immediately follows that statement up with a direct command. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as those who are called to serve the one who is in all authority... Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We observe in this statement from Christ that his, his authorized vision is our calling, and we are sent by his authority to make disciples. This statement comes directly from the mouth of, the, of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This is the eternally sanctioned voice of divine authority speaking. First to his disciples on the cusp of his crucifixion, 
and then following his resurrection and ascension through their teaching to you and to me. You see what that means? It means that if this word of command comes directly from the sanctioned voice of the one to whom God the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth, the eternal Son, the Savior, the glorious eternal Lord and King, then you and I are immediately faced with two questions. Do I recognize his voice and humbly acknowledge his authority? And am I living in obedience to his command? Well, I'd like you to notice something right up front. You will never live in obedience to his command unless you first acknowledge and submit to his authority. You'll never submit to his authority and fulfill his command unless you are willing to embrace by faith the same eternal vision and purpose expressed by the command to go into all the world with the gospel of God's grace, his saving grace. Missiologists, miss, missiologists, people who study and teach on mission, they use some rather unusual terms to describe the way Israel functioned in the days of the Old Testament and how we as the church today are to function in our world. The terms they use are centripetal and centrifugal. Israel's approach to missions was centripetal. It's the process of drawing in. The church of Jesus Christ is called to be centrifugal in our approach to missions, ever going outward. And the people of Israel were intended to be a signpost to the nations. The nations around Israel were supposed to look at Israel and say, wow, is that what it looks like when Yahweh is your God? We want that God. But Ezekiel tells us that instead of fulfilling their God-given function as the signpost, the people of God profaned his name wherever they went. They cheapened the name of Yahweh before the nations. And as the church of Jesus Christ, our calling and approach to missions is to be centrifugal, ever going outward to the people and to the nations. But there's also the centripetal aspect because we need to reveal the gospel to our culture. But to do that, we need to be visible. We need to stop hiding the reality of who we are from a world around us. And many of us as Christians are lethargically hiding in plain sight. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev used to tell of a time when there was a wave of petty theft in the Soviet Union. And to curtail this, the authorities set up guards at the, the gates of the factories and in one of these timber works in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, the guard knew all of the factory workers well. And the first evening out came Pyotr Petrovich pushing a wheelbarrow, and in it a large, suspicious-looking sack. All right, Petrovich, said the guard, what do you have in there? 
Oh, just sawdust and shavings, he said. Tip it out, which he did, and that's all it was. That went on night after night until the end of the week. The guard was rather frustrated. He said, Petrovich, I wasn't born yesterday. What do you have here? What are you smuggling out of here? He said, you really want to know? Wheelbarrows, my friend, wheelbarrows. You know, in the church, we have set up over the years all kinds of checkpoints to guard against liberalism and secularism and modernity and worldliness, and Satan has wheeled lethargy right past us under our noses and on into the church. You'll remember that Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 10 has told us that Israel's watchmen had been lulled into a sense of false security, lethargy, each one more concerned with their own personal concerns than the well-being of the nation. They lacked any compelling sense of urgency. Speaking of his frustration with parts of the church in his own day, D.L. Moody painted a vivid image when he said that the church reminded him of firemen straightening pictures on the walls of a burning house. So preoccupied with non-essentials while the lost world is hurtling toward hell on the outside. The war rages on outside, while many in our Western churches sit safely at rest inside the fortress, away from the front lines of the battle. Because for so many, the church has become their fortress from the world rather than the hope of the world. And a missionary content to remain inside the fortress is no missionary at all. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper, alluding to the Apostle Peter's words, poses the question, why is it that people don't ask us for an explanation of the hope that lies within us? He concludes, it's probably because we look like we hope in the very same things they do. Claiming to be satisfied with Christ, we can so easily give the impression that we are actually more contented with the world. God speaks to us through the words of John. He said, don't love the world, the things in the world. The world's passing away and its lusts. But he who does, does the will of God abides forever. In his poem, The Second Coming, William Butler Yeats alluded to the times in which he lived with the words, it's a time when the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. How like today? We are witnessing the passionate intensity of those who espouse godly ideologies and philosophies while many of us in the church sit by idle for the kingdom, lacking conviction. And I see it in the world. But where the Christians are the ones filled with the passionate intensity for the kingdom of God, the world's being turned upside down. Perhaps it's time we wheeled apathy right back out the door and brought commitment back in. Because of this vital, critical time, God wants us to live intentionally as his church. 
We, the church of Jesus Christ, you and I have received our commission from the one in all authority to go to the many people groups of the world and to make disciples, to to so proclaim the gospel as to see false worshipers become true worshipers, baptized in the name of the Son of God and following Christ. Yet somehow over the years, the Western Evangelical Church in North America, the British Isles, Europe, and Australia has gradually stepped back away from this call to go to the nations. So that we have a generation of Christian churches who have stopped recruiting and sending missionaries in obedience to this great, never retracted commandment of Christ our Lord to go. And here in Matthew 28, we read the command of Jesus, go and make disciples. And Matthew Ellison, he puts it plainly. He writes, sadly, so many churches have now domesticated the Great Commission by divorcing the phrase, make disciples, from the object of the sentence, all nations. And as a result, we have 7,000 unreached people groups living in the shadow of darkness today. And he says they're unreached, not because they're unreachable, but because we have made the decision not to reach them. Now, the missionary mantra has now become being on mission in your own context. Why? Because it's more comfortable to identify our call as being a call to the safe places. And so we call everything that we do in the local church mission. And in the introduction to, to their book, When Everything is Mission, Spitters and Ellison's book, Gordon Olson, he questions this, he says, if every Christian is already considered a missionary, then all can stay just where they are and nobody needs to get up and go anywhere to preach the gospel. Is this what's led to the serious decline in interest and support for apostolic pioneering missionary activity? We need missionaries. We need full-time missionaries. We need feet on the ground in these tough places of the world. Don't misunderstand me. God delights in those who pour out their lives for the sake of his name anywhere. Anywhere. And if you're called to give your life in the service of Christ by reaching your neighborhood with the gospel, that is wonderful. But we're speaking here in particular today about world missions, just referencing Christ's call to go to all the world, to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. According to the Barna Research Group, today over 50% of professing Christians in in the United States do not know what the Great Commission is. Oh, To not know and therefore not respond to this great commission from heaven's voice of all authority renders the church missionally impotent. 
to know and embrace this commission from God is to be compelled to go. When one of our daughters was very, very small, maybe three or four, she would uh, often come down to my office and she would uh, want to have a cuddle and sit on my lap. And then she would go down under my desk and curl up at my feet and fall asleep. On this one particular occasion, she came down and she found me on my knees with a map on the floor, a map of the world. And uh, she asked me, Daddy, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to travel to a place called Siberia. And I showed her the route that I would travel from the U.S. Uh, over to Russia and then on, on to Siberia and so on. She looked at the map and she looked at me. She said, Daddy, no wonder you're praying. John Sitton, founder of the mission group to every tribe ministries, he addressed the sense of call to mission. He said, I was never called to be a missionary, nor was I drafted. I volunteered. No special call was needed. I chose to go. I wanted to go. I was compelled to go. And where I go is always determined by an open Bible and a stretched out map of the regions where Christ is still unknown and unpraised. He continues, nowhere in Scripture is a mysterious supernatural call a prerequisite before we can respond to the Great Commission. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's merely a matter of obedience. All God needs is your availability and your obedience. So his authorized vision is our calling, and we are sent by his authority to make disciples. And then secondly... His sacred teaching is our commitment. And we are charged to teach the nations and to establish churches to the glory of God. He says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So as God's church in the world, we are challenged to make disciples. But there's a process by which that must take place. It begins when the message of the gospel is taken out to the world. First evangelism, then the teaching of disciples, and then the establishment of churches. And why those specific steps? That's because evangelism must always have as the end goal the establishment of churches. The fulfillment of the Great Commission is manifested in the establishment of biblically sound, God-worshipping Christians, disciples, gathered in churches. And if evangelism does not lead to the establishment of healthy churches across the nations, the process has malfunctioned somewhere along the way. And that's why we are committed in our ministry to training church planters in South Asia. It's also why we need many more feet on the ground across the nations to do the work of missions. David Johannes writes, a heavenly vision is not always a call to mission. It's more often a specific guidance for Christians who are already living on mission and, and are intent upon God's glory being revealed to the nations. He says, only when our spirits are aligned with God's deepest desires do we cease struggling, surrender to His will, and thrive in the purpose for which He created us. 
God's glory is the goal of all things. John Piper's regularly reminded us of that over 25 years. And our going out into the world and to the nations with the gospel of God's redeeming grace in Christ, the making of disciples, leads to the worship of God. And when we glorify God, we are attuned to His heart. He continues, when believers step out of the limelight and allow God's glory to take center stage, missionary service is the natural outcome. Worshiping God, looking outward. Young Count Zinzendorf, whose name we are familiar with in association with Martin Luther, he grew up in a pious atmosphere of Christian values. And as a six-year-old, he penned love letters to Jesus. And then he climbed the castle tower and he threw them out, these little letters, out through the window and watched them scatter across the courtyard below. And on a visit to the art museum, he stood riveted before Domenico Fetti's painting, Behold the Man. It's a portrait of Jesus bearing a crown of thorns on his brow. He was captured by the inscription below the painting, which reads like this. This I have suffered for you. Now, what will you do for me? The young Count Zinzendorf was profoundly moved. It led to an intensely personal faith in Christ. And after seeing this painting and reading the inscription, the young Zinzendorf committed his life to the service of Christ. And over the years, his zeal for Christ Jesus grew. Someone said, when you spend time with your heavenly father, his values imprint your life. His presence propels your passion for people. Prayer links your spirit to the spirit of God. And that was true for him. And this Zinzendorf wrote, I have but one passion. It is he. It is he alone. And when Christ became his all in all, he inevitably felt compassion for the lost because selfless love for others springs from a supreme supreme love of God. Without a passion for God and his truth, there will never exist a passion for his glory among the nations. Because a passion for missions is born out of a passion for God and his truth. The flame of any missionary call is first ignited by God's word and then fanned into a flame by the content of the gospel. The Bible says, set your mind on things above, things that have their origin from above, not things that are on the earth. And our calling is to become countercultural in our mindset and lifestyle. To live as righteous deviants, as Johannes says. Unwilling to kowtow to a culture that tells you to hold your tongue and conform to the expectations and lies that tell you your life is all about you. From your youth to the final chapters of your life, playing golf and picking up shells on the beach. C.S. Lewis, he said this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were simply those who thought most of the next. They had an eternal vision. 
missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson and Amy Carmichael, they inspire us. They inspire us to take calculated risks to display the power of God. They were ordinary men and women with an extraordinary confidence in God and commitment to his call on their lives. And they had an an unrelenting confidence in the sovereignty of God and a robust theology of mission. The kind that produces radical obedience, sacrificial service, and an an enduring passion for world missions in those who go. And they believed and They had a deep-seated commitment to the truth that resounds from Psalm 86, 8 and 9. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and will worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. We go and we teach and we baptize new believers in the name of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and establishing God-glorifying churches. And in this process, God chooses weak vessels through whom to display the transforming power of His truth, like you and me. The glory that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Weak vessels empowered by the Spirit of God and emboldened by the content of the gospel. The early missionaries stepped out of their, out in obedience to God's call in their lives. They built a coffin. They put all their possessions in it. They sailed to a distant land to a people who had never heard the name of Christ. Some of them never made it. They died on the way. Half of the early missionaries died within two years of being on the mission field. Many have been martyred. And like the first missionary to the Muslim people, Raymond Lull, who died in Tunis in 1315 at the age of 82, when he was stoned to death, stoned to death for his evangelistic zeal and fervor. On one occasion in the early 1600s, 70 Japanese Christians at Yedo were crucified upside down at low water and drowned when the tide came in. Now you may say, what a waste of life. What a waste of life. But the impact of faithfulness may not be known until later. Many of us have heard the name Helen Roosevelt, who served Christ and suffered greatly in the Belgian Congo and Africa at the time of the Simba uprising in the 1960s. But I wonder if you've ever heard the name of J.W. Tucker, who also served Christ in the Congo at that same time. In November 1964, when anarchy broke out across the Belgian Congo, Missionary J.W. Tucker knew that he was at risk. He knew his life was at risk, but he stayed there because he believed God had called him to stay there, placed him there. And one day a mob attacked and killed him. Killed him with sticks and clubs and fists and broken bottles. Then they threw his body into the back of a truck. And they drove to the Bomba Kandi River 
in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they tossed his corpse to the crocodiles. F.W. Tucker had risked everything, yet seemingly had nothing to show for it. But 30 years later, the truth of how God used that missionary sacrifice emerged. The Bomba County River flows through the middle of the Mangbeto tribe, a people virtually without the gospel. And during the time of that, that war, the Mangbeto king became distressed and, and, and with all the violence. And he appealed to the central government in Kinshasa for help. And the central government responded by sending them a man called the Brigadier, a well-known policeman of strong stature and reputation. He came to the region. Well, J.W. Tucker had witnessed and had won the brigadier to the Lord just two months before he was murdered. The brigadier knew that the only way to peace was through Jesus Christ. So he prayed that he might present it to this tribal people well and accurately. He heard of a Mungbeto tradition that said, if the blood of any man flows in the Bombacati River, you must listen to his message. This saying had been with the Mungbetos for generations. The brigadier knew that. He called for the king and all the village elders, and he told them, some time ago, a man was killed and his body was thrown into the Bomba County River. The crocodiles ate him. His blood flowed in your river. But before he died, he left me a message. This message confirms God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save people who were sinners. He died for sinners in the world. He died for my sins. And I received that message, and it changed my life. And as the brigadier preached, the Spirit of God descended, and people began to fall on their knees and to cry out to the Lord. And many were converted. And since that day, thousands of Mungbetos have committed their lives to Christ and dozens of churches have been established to the glory of God as a result of the message from the man whose blood flowed in the Bombacandi River. Now, we see these things from Christ's perspective. It's very different. A waste of life from our perspective. And then we see not only is his authorized vision our calling and his sacred teaching our commission, but his faithful pledge is our confidence. We have promised his presence to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. You see what that means? It means that there are two billion people in our, day, in our world today whose knowledge of God is only sufficient to damn them to hell for an eternity. We need to understand a truth, a special truth. A vital truth. Our motivation in doing missions is not first and foremost for the sake of the lost. 
Scottish preacher, P.T. Forsyth, writing years ago, he said, the mainspring of mission is not pity, but faith. Not so much pity for the perishing sinners as faith and zeal for the church rights of Christ. Why does the psalmist write precious in the sight of the Lord as the death of his holy ones? Because when a Christian goes, dies and goes to home, home to be with the Lord, Jesus receives back part of his inheritance, a portion of the reward of his suffering. And he's glorified and he's honored and he's worshiped and he's adored. And every individual, every remote tribe of people already has the knowledge of God. We go to the nations because the heathen really are lost. We go first and foremost for the sake of our God and Father who loved them, loved the lost, sent his son to be their sin bearer because he loved them, gave himself for them, purchased them with his shed blood. We have a spectacular message that there is more grace in God than there is sin in me. Go in pursuit of the church rights of Christ. What is the underlying motivation of our Christian life? Are we intrinsically driven to publicize the name of Christ because we've encountered God's scandalous grace? All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. He's promised to go with us wherever we go on this earth. But here's my question. Is the bold, courageous faith of Christians willing to risk everything for Christ and his kingdom call to the nations a thing of the past? Is that finished? Robertson McQuilkin, former president of CIU, he said the most critical issue for missions in the 21st century is theological. Are those who have never heard of Christ's saving grace certainly lost? If there is any question about this, the heroic sacrifices of missionaries witnessed in the 19th and 20th centuries will not be forthcoming in the 21st. Oh, they're lost. Is it still true today for you and for me as it was for Paul that we're not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe to the Jew first and then the non-Jew? The time's gone. We mentioned Helen Roosevelt. Let me finish with a story about her. You know, she was in the the Congo serving. And she said, after suffering so deeply, so deeply during that Simba uprising, they came and they raped her, these soldiers, and they beat her and kicked her teeth in and left her there laughed at her, scoffing at her, burned the, the handwritten copy of the book she'd written over the last 11 years showing what God had done in the Congo. All her life as a young girl, she'd asked the question, what, is, is it worth it? Buy this thing, go out on an outing with this young man, is it worth it? And as she lay there, defiled and 
wickedly beaten, cruelly treated. Through her clenched teeth, she said, is it worth it? Is it worth it? She said, in the midst of that, the Spirit of God spoke to her and said, you know, Helen, you've been asking the wrong question all your life. The question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worthy? Am I worthy? And she said, I looked up into the, as if into the eyes of the Lord, and I said, yes, Lord, it's worth doing because you alone are worthy. How can you do that? She stayed on for many years. How do you do that? You do that because of why she was living. She was living for his story. May I ask you this question? Whose story are you living for today? You're living for his story. You will look for your own safety. You're living for your story. You'll look for your own safety. If you're looking for his story, you will look for his glory. God is calling us to the nations. It's my prayer that someone today in this place will hear the call of God and stand and say, I am ready to go wherever you call me because you are the voice of authority and I'm submitting to your voice. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours. Lord, we know that we can't commend what we don't cherish. But Lord, we want to cherish you to the extent that we will leave all the comforts behind. We thank you, our Father, that your love for us is demonstrated in your Son. And so, Father, now we, we don't want to remain silent and we don't want to be silenced as we seek to live for your story and to live for your glory among the nations. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.